Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right, welcome. You know, that video actually sets the stage for the uh, for this conversation reasonably well, I think. The jazzy um, tune at the end. I liked it. Yeah, that's right. Like um, so yeah, listen, guys, everyone, welcome to... This Friday's Resolve Riffs, we have Harley Bassman, not to be confused with YouTube's Harley Baseman, um, apparently, who uh, rides Harleys and, and drops the bass. Um, so Slap welcome, Harley, to the Slap. show. Slaps the bass. That's <laughs> it. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Um, Mike, do you so want to hit, hit us with yeah. the disclaimers before we... Well, uh, it's my... I don't even know how to do this anymore. It's the first one back. I feel rusty. It's the 15th of January. I haven't done this since last week in December. Yep. I'm welcome and uh, cheers, everyone. I'm enjoying a, a Basil Hayden uh, bourbon moment. Fancy. Mm-hmm. Got my usual beer. Very nice. We have a couple of... Uh, Folks that are on the wagon, dry Januarys over there, or something. I don't know what it is, but they're not they're not joining us. Yeah, Anyways, um, as as everybody knows, the conversations here are for entertainment purposes only. Uh, we hope to amaze and entertain you. Do not take any advice from the four scoundrels on this uh, webcast today, but do enjoy the conversation and and allows us to be, uh, you know, sort of a little bit freer with thoughts and um, pursue paths that maybe are not discussed so often. So. Welcome, and if you do enjoy the content, make sure you smash that like button. I just love the word that you use, use the word smash, but anyway. And there and we go. And subscribe. We're off, we're off. Yeah, Harley, uh, it would be good to uh, get a little bit of an intro from yourself, uh, your background, uh, known for the move index and all that fun stuff, so. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'm you know, old, uh, old on Wall Street, 
uh, East Chicago MBA, uh, so a monetarist, went to uh, Wall Street. I worked at Drexel actually for a, a few years, but not with Mike Milken. And I went to Merrill Lynch in 85, and I was there for 26 years. Uh, while I was there, I, um, I created the Move Index, but I basically was you know options, mortgages, and all that fun stuff. Uh, I after, after Merrill imploded, I went to uh, PIMCO, uh, where I uh, managed some of their hedge funds, and I'm now here in California in Laguna Beach. So you're not Bill Gross's neighbor by chance, are you? Because uh, <laughs> um, I can actually see his old house, uh, the house where he um, well, good stuff. You can read about that it. Was, uh, in the paper. <laughs> yeah, that was that was good drama. Yes. Um, and so, uh, Harley, you write a, um, a a newsletter. What is that newsletter about, and um, what is what is the the purpose? Uh, well, I write under the moniker uh, Convexity Maven. You can find my stuff at convexitymaven.com. Uh, it's free, uh, so my email address is there. So just send me a note. I'll, I'll add you to it. It's uh, episodic. I write when I like, uh, which could be a couple times in a month. It could be you know three or four months apart. Um, it tends to be big macro ideas, uh, two to five year horizon, not nips to blips, no trading, no RV. Um, and then I manage a hedge fund of one, which is me. So I have a personal ISDA and I could trade anything I like. And um, almost anything you read in uh, my commentaries is in my personal account. So I, I uh, definitely uh, eat my own cooking. Nice. And so, and, what, what, um, do you, what is your? What's the reason that you that you go to the extra effort to write and share, uh, given that it's a hedge fund of one? Um, one of the reasons, one of the great values of being on Wall Street, being on a trading floor, is um, uh, aside from all the old school stuff that's now gone, is that you work with very smart people who will push back on your idea, and you to. to, to if you can't defend your idea to a smart person, clearly it's not that good an idea. And you want someone to come up and say, you know, you're fat, you're dumb, you're bald, and your idea sucks, and, and you give them the first three, but then you say, but the idea doesn't suck because of this. And it is very difficult to come up with clever ideas um, in your jammies. Uh, and, 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 and so that's the tough part. So I, I, I miss the trading floor um, for, for basically kicking around ideas and finding where the flaws are, getting other ideas from people. Um, the writing... I like doing it for, I like to write, uh, but also it's a way of, of uh, crystallizing an idea by, by being forced to write it out. Uh, if you can't explain your idea to your mother, then you don't understand it. And um, so that's kind of, what it, it's almost self-serving in that sense. Uh, but also um, I'll get feedback from people uh, who will have clever ideas, which will make me rethink what I'm doing and uh, try and find other ways to go and uh, attack a problem. And if you were I'd to describe to hear how you explain your um, recommended list tra of trades to your mother, <laughs> like the uh, the seven year option on 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 ten on ten year rates and stuff like that, that must be you must have a really special mother. Uh, you know, you're 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 you're, you're circling around uh, the question you want to ask, which is how do you explain convexity to a civilian? Right? Isn't it really what it comes down to? Because everything I do is all options and. Convex is a sexy X word, and the way you explain it to people is it's unbalanced leverage. So if you get to uh, enter into a financial agreement with someone where given certain circumstances, you make a dollar, 
or lose the dollar under equal, you know, up and down, good news, bad news, that's zero convexity. If you make two and lose one, that's positive convexity. If you lose three and make two, that's negative convexity. And then if you take this idea of, I know what the return profile is, I know what the yield is of something that up one, down one, zero convexity, I should get, I should pay to get something that's up two, down one. What do you pay for that? Or what yield would I accept? So if up and down one yields 5%, should I get four and a half, four, three and a half? What number is that going to be for the up and down two to one? And for the negative three versus two, I should get more yield. So should I get five and a half, six, seven? And if you really want to dig into why, why were we hiring physics PhDs for most of the 90s uh, onto Wall Street, it was to solve that problem. And uh, is there, there's, there's no correct answer, but there are, uh, you can figure out the zip code of where things should be. And that's what most of Wall Street does in terms of anything that's not treasury has an embedded option in it. A, a corporate bond, what is that? It's a treasury security plus a default option. What are the odds of that? What should you get paid for that? Um, and, 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 and so, you can expand this idea to, if I'm looking at the entire range of securities or investment opportunities, am I getting paid the right number given the risk available? And, and uh, so that's what, what the, the quants on Wall Street uh, once upon a time did. And, and, and what I did was specific into the mortgage world. So the, the prepayment option, the default option for mortgages, and, and what that would be worth. So the, you need the quants because, you know, while we all learn... Um, the slope of a line rise over run in school, you don't typically learn how to model nonlinear relationships. And typically when you're modeling convexity, those relationships tend to be nonlinear and sometimes they're nonlinear um, in multiple dimensions. Well, by definition, they're nonlinear because they have convexity to them. Um, in, in simple terms, uh, you're standing on a point. And so that's, I guess, you know, one dimension. Um Velocity, so the change from here to there over a certain time, velocity is the first derivative, right? And, uh, or delta for options. And the change, so if you're going from 10 miles an hour to 20 miles an hour, that's acceleration. That's the second derivative. So people actually have plenty of contact with first and second derivative ideas. They just call them different words. We call it delta in option lands but you can call it marginal cost in economics. So uh, people are familiar. You just got to put it in their own language and, and, and becomes actually uh, reasonable. I mean, they traded options well before Black-Scholes, and they did that by human intuition as to what are the odds of something happening and what am I willing to pay for it or sell it for? Gotcha. Outside of the convexity uh, ideas that you obviously espouse, espouse what are some of the other... Uh, tools in your toolkit? What's the framework that you use to make sense of the world of investing and, and, and how that informs your investment thesis in general? Um, when I go and invest, uh, you know, my, my, I, I think that entry level is almost meaningless. Uh, I, I don't try to time the market. I don't try to buy or, or sell at a certain point. It's do I like the profile or not? And then it's a matter of uh, sizing. Sizing trumps 
entry level. You have to uh, invest big enough so it'll make a difference if you're right, uh, but not so big that you'll be really uh, damaged if you're wrong. And so sizing is more important than entry level, assuming you've figured out what the good idea is. Usually when I find an idea I like, I'll just go and I'll do it right that day. Because I, 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 I really have no intuition as to whether it'll be higher or lower the next day. Um, so as I, um, we actually took the time to review some of your recent writing, say, you know, five or six pieces over the last two or three years. And um, so I thought I'd take a stab at trying to distill your themes, sort of sort of pick two or three major themes that maybe we could we could try to hit today um, and see if we could sort of construct a narrative arc or connection between those themes. So the first one that I noticed was this idea of demographics as destiny, right, where you've got a baby boomer uh, population that will have sort of mostly retired by a certain point. Millennials will be coming into their prime uh, employment and purchasing years. And if you model this type of relationship um, back through time, you can, I think, identify a relationship between demographics and interest rates, growth rates, inflation rates. And so I, I've noticed that you've sort of got some analysis in your pieces that connect that connect those dots fairly regularly. A second one, which seems you seem to have sort of accelerated into over the last two or three years, is riffing on this idea of MMT, which of course is just the sort of a way of thinking about the plumbing of the financial system, but but it seems to be used as a, a proxy for fiscal expansion, right? So we're gonna we're gonna use this concept of MMT to to legitimize or rationalize a massive amount of expansion of the, the fiscal balance sheet over the next few years. And sort of following on that, there's no way to substantially embark on a period of fiscal expansion without eventually running into a wall of inflation. And what does inflation mean for um, the relationships between the most commonly traded assets in most people's portfolios, namely equities and, and bonds, right? So is, does that narrative arc connect for you? And, and did I do a good job of hitting those three themes? Or are there, is there anything else you want to hit? Uh, clearly, there must be a cliff notes of what I write because you got pretty good. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah. So um, in no particular order, let's just think about um, what we've had happen in the last decade. We had the financial blow up. Um, for good or for evil, it occurred. Uh, who, who is the, the villain? Lots of villains out there, uh, which is a, a fine topic for, for a beer or some other hard, hard beverage. Um, but once we had that event, the government had to go and save the system, which means saving the bankers, uh, although frankly, they, should, they all should go out to jail, especially the boss at my firm, um, uh, because we are a financial economy. We're not based upon gold. We're not based upon barter. We're a financial economy, and we're a levered financial economy. We have three, four, eight times leverage over the actual money we have. And that money goes through the system via the plumbing of the banks. So therefore, we had to go and save the banks. Um, that's the, that, and, and so QE1 was the right thing to do. It had to happen, um, villains or not. Was QE two, three, or four necessary? No, it wasn't. That was that that was a mistake, and it's still a mistake. Um, but we had to save the plumbing. Now we've saved the plumbing. Now what do we do? We have too much debt. How do you get rid of debt? There's three ways, which only two of them are viable. 
One of them, which is what we did after World War II, was you grow out of it. But that's not happening for lots of reasons, so let's take it off the table. So now you have default or inflate. And inflation is just a slow motion default. So the Fed's idea was, fine, we're going to go, since we don't want default, because default means people lose their jobs, uh, money is lost, bad things happened. Break um, the system, basically. It's not even breaking the system. It's, it's just people, human beings, individually are harmed. Um, what Andrew Mellon, right, 19, what, 33 or, or whatever it says, uh, liquidate the farms, liquidate the banks, liquidate everything. But that, the idea was to go flush the system out, um, which... I guess is fine in theory if you're dealing with you know inanimate objects, but dealing with people who actually are going to suffer, then that's a bad idea as a public policy concept. Um, so bankruptcies are a bad idea as a public policy idea, um, especially if you're the one who goes bankrupt. So inflation uh, is, is a fine idea because basically it's a tax across the country, across everybody, and it's a silent tax, which makes it viable politically. Um, the problem we had here is, is that when the Fed tried to create inflation, the, um, it didn't go to wages for labor or for people. It went into assets. So people who say the Fed pumped in money and we had no inflation, that's totally false. We have plenty of inflation uh, in assets, stocks, bonds, gold, real estate, gems, art. It all, it all went up. Um, I wouldn't say – I would not uh, – Private equity is just, it's just a levered collection of stocks and bonds. So it, it, Agreed. It's, it's, it's the same thing. Um, so, so yeah, um, and, and is that a public policy good? Clearly not. I mean, I mean, I, I, did, I did okay. I have assets, so I did okay on this thing. I suspect you guys did also. But, I mean, is that a public policy good? Of course not. Um, so uh, now we've got to go to the next stage, and we're going to go and get fiscal policy to try to create um, – the inflation in wages. How will it do that? Um, uh, I, I don't have that slide up, but uh, MV, money times velocity, equals PQ, price times quantity, equals GDP. What the Fed did the first time was take M up, but V went down, so nothing changed. Uh, they're now going to, so velocity is, has been collapsing. So the idea now is how do you go and uh, get velocity up? Well, when you give me a dollar, I ain't spending a dollar, okay? And that's not it. Um, different slide. Um, when you take velocity up, uh, when you give me a dollar, I don't spend it. I save most of it. I spend some of it. When you give Joe Sixpack a dollar, he's going to spend it. As a matter of fact, I think about from a Fed study a few years ago, uh, 40% of households uh, could not scrounge up $400 in an emergency, a car repair, washing machine goes out, whatever it might be. Uh, so if they get money, they're spending it. So Fed money printing goes to assets. That doesn't work. Fiscal spending via the federal government going to ordinary people, that will work. And so that's what's going to happen right now is, is, is that. Now, before we go any further to MMT, let's step back a second. Um, this slide right here, I presume must be up for people. Um, this is the pig of the python. So... It's talking about demographics. Uh, demographics is the iceberg, which is 10% above the water, which you can see, and 90% below the water. Um, and this is where I base basically everything I do. Um, if you look at this chart, which is basically, thanks to uh, Gerard Minnick uh, of Australia, uh, if you're going to go and pay for a service, 
This is the one to do. Um, you see that this baby boom cohort, 1946, 1964, as they enter the workforce, what do they do? They get married. They have kids. They buy a car. They buy a house. They buy a washing machine. There is massive demand as household formation occurs. And who are they buying it from? They're buying it from their parents who were working, who were then the larger part of the workforce, but that's a smaller generation. So therefore, the supply that they can create is less than the demand from this bulge. And that's why you said rates go up and inflation go up because of this demand. And it peaks in the late 70s, early 80s. When is that? When the boomers are turning 30, 35, peak spending years, peak household formation. It then travels on down, but on a very bumpy path. What's interesting here is you see how it's going to turn up again. Yeah, between 2023 and 2025, the labor force growth rate will go back up. And with that, you should see um, rates, inflation go back up because the boomers who are the suppliers of goods, we are retiring and dying and everything else is good. And the millennials are forming households and having babies. And, and, and the reason why it's lagged a little bit is that my kids uh, get, uh, the millennials get married and form households at a later date than the boomers. The boomers had their first kids at like age 24, 25. Uh, millennials is four to five years later. As a matter of fact, this had this uh, in the uh, Times and the Journal uh, last year. Uh, if you, they did it by city. And if you look at like New York or San Fran, uh, first child is born like age 31 in, in those cities. Uh, and that, that, that's average. So, uh, but when you have a kid, you are going to buy a bigger house, you're going to buy that minivan, and you're going to buy all the stuff. So this demand is going to come, and the supply is from the boomers who are retiring. And so that's, that's the story of how demographics is going to take this thing up. And then you're going to turbocharge this thing with fiscal spending that will take this giant um, uh, pile of money and set it afire. Because the velocity will set is the match that will set the money afire. Um, and I don't mean in a bad way. I just mean we're going to get the inflation that we've been waiting for and that the Fed's wanted. And uh, I'm not looking for hyperinflation, but uh, it ain't going to be one, two. It'll be, you know, three, four. Um, and that's all. And, and that as a public policy, short term, that's a good thing. Okay, and one of the things that that struck me, you have several charts on this in your deck and in some of your reports, um, but you clearly have an interest in how an uptick in inflation and a commensurate uptick in rates may impact the relationship between equity returns and bond returns and what that means to typical portfolios, um, you know, the, the typical retirement portfolios that an average retiree has um, uh, to support their later years. And so I'm just, I'm just wondering if we could focus on that for a little bit, what, what implications are you, are you discovering and what does that mean in terms of expectations for portfolios? Okay. Um, I'm not going to predict the end of the world, but, but, um, if I'm right about what's going to happen, then 
it will be, you know, bad news for good people. Uh, and the reason why is this. Um, do I have that there? I don't. Um, what we've had for the last 9, 10, 11 years is, and this is, you can find this in my website, various places, is the correlation of stocks to bonds. And you got to be really careful when you're talking stocks and bonds, you're talking prices or yields. For stocks, you could talk price. So the daily price movement, the daily price change, and that's legit. For bonds, you can't talk price because there is no price to a bond because the bond is always changing. A 30-year bond becomes a 29-year bond. Uh, a five-year becomes a four-year. So its price movement changes. So you have to look at yield to go and make it an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. So uh, presently, the correlation of stocks to bonds, so stock price to bond yield is positive. Stock price to bond price is negative. So you get this negative, uh, I don't want that one. Go to uh, page nine, what I have up right now. Um, when, you, when you look at that, what drives that correlation? It's been, um, it's been interest rates, inflation, which is the same kind of thing. If you believe that real rates are near a half, let's say, 10-year uh, notes and, and, and inflation are the same thing. Uh, when you have inflation below three and a half, you tend to get stocks and bonds to go in opposite directions. And so they hedge each other. So this idea of a 60-40 portfolio being self-hedging is kind of good. But if you want to go and really juice that up, you become Ray Dalio and become a billionaire offering risk parity. Nothing wrong with what he did. It was a clever idea and, and it's worked. And what he did and other risk parity funds and what you guys might be doing because you're levered is you'd have $100, you buy $130 of bonds and 70 bucks of stocks. And that ratio is uh, adjusted according to the uh, correlation. So you look last, last 90 days or 120 days, whatever it might be, what's the correlation of stocks to bonds and you do the weighting accordingly. Um, and in theory, if, you know, uh, you know if, if, if you got the right numbers, then they go back and forth and they hedge each other and you get a positive return out of that. What happens if you get the correlation to flip so stocks and bonds both go down together or go up together? And that tends to happen when you get inflation or rates above 3.5 or 4%. So once again, here's a George Minnick's uh, chart. You can see where the, where the breaks are in this. He has 2.5% inflation here. Let's go to, this is from Bank of America, and they have theirs at 5%. It depends how you do, if you're looking at interest rates or inflation, CPI versus whatever. Next one, here's, a, uh, I think it was Credit Suisse. Look where it costs the line at 3.5%. At, at so all everyone, I mean, they're all using the same data. So you're going to go and get the same result. Um, and so that's the idea is if we do get rates above three and a half, four, that you're going to see the correlation flip the other way. And if you take the correlation and you go back 50, 60 years, 70 years, before 2009, the correlation was zero. You had half the time above, positive correlation, half the time below. 
But over the course of, of, of 40 years, um, there was no correlation in, in that sense. But you did get the correlation to line up when you got low rates of low inflation. Um, so that's the great fear. Uh, can we get rates above three and a half or four percent? Uh, no. Uh, but if you're if it's going to happen, using my you know, projection of demographics and then the acceleration of fiscal spending, it's going to be two, three, four years from now. And so don't panic. All's fine. You know, save for the pool. But I think 2023 to 25 should be where we get the higher rates. And then you're going to have uh, the correlation flip. And then what happens? Everyone who's levered is going to get killed because if you have $200 of assets and $100 of, I'll use the word equity, but I mean cash, dollars in the account, um, and they both go down, you got a problem. And that's what happened in March. And that's what really accelerated the, uh, the collapse. It, it, you had, everything went down. Stocks, bonds, gold, everything went down. And if you're levered, you, you got a real problem. And that's why the Fed had to step in with the you know, double bazookas to go stop things because you can get into a margin scenario where you can't stop the, uh, the game. So uh, that's how bad things can get if the correlations flip. Uh, and this notion that, uh, that you see everywhere, the, the demise of the 60-40 portfolio, that's just bogus, man. I mean, if you're 60-40 and you're unlevered, there's nothing wrong with that. So they both go down, whatever. I mean, you're supposed to always be diversified. And the rule about 60-40, which is well before, you know, all this risk parity nonsense, uh, was that you're supposed to invest your age in bonds. So if you're 25, you have 75 stocks, 25 bonds. If you're 60, you know, you have 60 bonds, 40 stocks because you have less time to make it back. Uh, a 60-40 portfolio it, on an unlevered basis is, is going nowhere. I have no problem with that. It's the leverage that's the issue. So how do you think the, there's a couple of things there. Like the 70s are a great example. The efficient frontier between stocks and bonds was, as you say, a straight line. Bonds, all they did was change the risk that you took in the portfolio, there was no enhancement. There was no curve to that efficient frontier because there was a correlation between the two assets. But at that time, you also had assets driven by inflationary pressures. They didn't have tips back then, but you had gold and commodities do exceptionally well. Now, taking out the, the tail of things, because I think there's a tail hedge opportunity there in a crisis like March, if you're so in our risk priority products, there's a large allocation or a risk-based allocation to those things that respond well in different types of inflationary pressures. How does that, does that change your view on risk parity? Keeping in mind that there is a whole other set of asset classes that will thrive during inflationary periods. And risk parity is, is really also firmly about including those because you have to have those assets to perform in those inflationary regimes. Well, I was speaking about these pure, simple risk parity of stocks to bonds. I did not include other hedge products uh, or other asset classes or options. So let's be clear about that. To the extent that you guys or anybody buys into the idea that the correlation changes over time and the driver of that change is something, interest rates, rate level, uh, uh, gold level, real rates, could be any of those things, and you then introduce those products into your portfolio, then you're fine. Um, specifically, if you go to the last page of my most recent write-ups, what do I say in there? I say, 
Um, I say two things. Number one is I've replaced uh, in my PA. So, so just as a reminder, my last write-up uh, was called the uh, my holiday stocking stuffers, where I go and I lay out my portfolio of what I think is the you know, best investments. That's basically my PA. And then the one before that, Wages of Fear, was a, uh, a somewhat in-depth, non-monetary essay on why we will have inflation in the next X number of years. Um, what, what I, so I've gotten rid of credit risk and I've replaced it with leverage risk because the Fed is offering me free leverage with rates being at you know zero for the next two or three years and volatility being reduced via QE. It doesn't mean it's going away. It doesn't mean it can't go up. I'm just saying that whatever it would be in, a, in a, if the Fed was not involved, it's lower with the Fed involved. Um, and so I'll buy REITs or, or other closed-end funds because that, that's employing leverage as opposed to a, 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 a junk bond fund or, or, or junk bonds in general. Um, Are you also counting on the Fed's backstop there? Because I, I was looking at that earlier and you are talking about the muni bonds and the mortgage REITs. Kind of sounds like you're... you're, you're the Fed put, which a lot of people equate to equities, but in actual fact, what they really came to the rescue was, was corporate bonds back in March to allow the, the plumbing of the system to to, uh, to avoid the clogging of that plumbing. So it sounds to me like you're kind of counting on that backstop. Would that be accurate? Yes and no. I, I do think that the Fed will dampen volatility. I also think that over the course of time, uh, the markets are bigger than the Fed. Um, we're not going to become Argentina, but I mean, you know, markets are markets. And, and also, by the way, you know, a steeper curve is not a bad thing. Fed holding the front end at, you know, zero or one and the back end going to four is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, as a public policy concept, it's a great idea because, uh, insurance companies, pension funds are getting killed with low rates, um, to the extent that uh, right now with, with a very flat curve and very low rates, um, you're, it, 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 there are people who get hurt, okay? You are taking money from A and putting it in, in, in B's pocket. The insurance and, and pension funds are getting, you know, getting killed over here. Uh, savers are being hurt to the extent that we steepen the curve, but we allow people to borrow uh, over the front end at a low rate, that's okay also. So I, I don't think the Fed needs to keep the curve flat to accomplish their job. But back to your other question, I, I what I've done in my portfolio and what I'm trying to devise for, uh, I will call them civilians, uh, non-professionals, uh, is a way to buy, um, to get longer-term protection. Uh, what I've done is I bought this long-dated option that struck at 3.5%. And the idea being that if I could buy a long-dated option at 3.5%, uh, that if rates do get up there, I'm stopped out. And with vols very low and 4% being very far away. I mean, we, we, we were there a few years ago, but from where we are now, it's very far away. It's an option is very cheap. Um, you could own um, a lot of these leveraged assets, closed-end funds, REITs, whatever, and they're not going to get hurt until rates really get up there. Uh, I mean, you know, the mortgage REITs probably own a lot of Fannie threes, I'm going to guess, um, maybe even some three and a halfs. Uh, and so those bonds really don't get, you know, nightmarish until you get 
those things pull apart and then they extend out and, and they get killed. Um, how about a close? I mean, you guys don't care, but I mean, I do. Closed end muni fund in California. Quality fund. So, so no, no junk. You can buy a national fund. Just make sure it doesn't have Puerto Rico, Illinois, Connecticut, New Jersey. I mean, you don't want that crap. Um, but um, other diverse states, these, uh, my California fund yields four, four and a quarter, four and a half percent. Um, what's wrong with that? Now, how do they get that return? They get it because they probably own four uh, percent callable bonds. So the fact that they're paying out a four and a half yield doesn't mean that the bonds actually yield that because you can see the NAV declining. These bonds are probably they're probably priced at one twelve on their way to par. So I'm getting the four percent coupon, but these bonds are going to get called eventually and get reinvested at a lower rate. So you got to be careful about that. Um, but what's the problem with that 4% uni bond is that right now it has four, five, seven years to go because they were issued three, four years ago. If we get rates above four, they go from being a five-year to a 25-year. Then they whip on out and then you have some real rate risk. Well, if I buy an option struck where that inflection point is, I'm basically buying back that extension risk in the closed-end fund. And so, so, so that, that's yeah. great. I, I love that. It just it, it kind of dovetails on Corey Hofstein's question about, you know, big fan of your work and in your stocking stuffers. When you're thinking about the, your trades, are you thinking of them as one-off or as integrated? You know, are you, are you considering your trades in isolation versus a collective portfolio? And I think it's opportune to add that uh, question there because it sounds to me like that there's a lattice work in the portfolio that is accounting for certain things. So the muni bonds are there, but there is a hedge to the potential destructive uh, tide that could come in by rising rates in those muni bonds. So maybe you can continue to chat about the muni bonds and the, and the, and the, um, the hedge, but also in the context of the rest of the portfolio, do you, do you continue that sort of lattice work of, of, um, of uh, consideration? It's, it, 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 it's all, it's, it, it does hand and glove together. I, I, as long as as long as the rates stay three or below on the ten year, I think almost everything is fine. Uh, is it going to happen by sheer luck or by the Fed or by demographics or by the economy? Uh, I'm not sure of that. Uh, yield but curve if, control? Yield, did, are, are you concerned at all with yield curve control? Well, yield curve control is just, is just QE on the back end. So yeah, I right. mean, I, I would call it concerned. I have no idea. I mean, call Jay Powell and Rich Clarita. Um, you know, they, they have an idea. Uh, what they want to do is unclear. I mean, with inflation at two, um, that's you know, one choice. If inflation is at five, does it make sense for them to keep on buying bonds at, you know, two and a half percent? Probably not. Because um, then you're going to end up with a, uh, a currency problem. I mean, I mean, the money has to go somewhere. And the Fed certainly cannot control our currency, or at least not yet. Um, I suppose they could if they wanted to, but to date, you really have never seen the U.S. government intervene in FX markets. Uh, they've jawboned, you know, a few times, uh, but they've never really gone into the markets and, and, and bought and sold. Why are we not concerned about credit risk on mortgage REITs? Well, the, 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 the I mean, AGNC and Annalee, um, they only buy Fannie, Freddie, Ginny bonds, so they can't default. I mean, I guess in theory, 
I guess Fannie Mae could default, but no. Federal backstop again. So the reason yeah. why that the mortgage re ETF yields whatever it is, eight, eight and a half percent, is that because of the callable nature of the bonds? Like it just the, help me understand why this yield is is so high and why the beta of that fund as an example is close to two vis-a-vis the S&P? Uh, the, the beta has to do with the leverage, um, uh, as, which is, you know, tricky. What is a mortgage rate? Um, let's just look at a, a simple rate that, 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 that only buys, you know, Fannie three and a half. So what do they do? So you give them $100. They take the $100 and they buy $700 of Fannie three and a half. So they have to borrow 600. So our first step over here is they're borrowing 600 bucks. Where are they borrowing it at? Well, they're borrowing it at, you know, LIBOR plus pennies. What's the risk? The risk is that rate goes up, right? Their borrowing cost goes up. Um, and forget the movement of the, of, of, of the three and a half for now of the portfolio. This is, it's, it, it, it doesn't move. If that rate goes from, you know, 0.25 to 1.25, well, all of a sudden, the amount of yield you're going to earn out of that thing gets collapsed by a lot. So they have to go and hedge that front end. Well, kind of right now, you don't have to hedge, or if you do, it's very, very cheap because the Fed said, I'm not taking rates up for two and a half years. So risk number one, that's gone, or very cheap to hedge. Um, risk number two is uh, you, you, you buy... Your, your, your 30 these are 30 year mortgages uh the price of that can go down okay so what do you got to do you have to go and sell 10-year treasuries 10-year swaps 10-year futures some number but you're selling something some kind of of uh uh duration asset that goes down when rates go up so you're shorting something um the risk you have there is the spread between your Fannie mortgages and your 10-year treasury or uh, moves around. Well, that risk is going to be, exists, it ain't changing, but it's reduced because the Fed is buying, what, 30, 40, 50 billion a month of mortgages. So whatever risk is there, it's not gone, it's just reduced as long as they're buying those mortgages. And then finally, uh, even if that spread between the two rates, the mortgage and the treasury, let's just say it's fixed at 50. I'm making up a number. And it goes up and down. As rates go up and down, the 10-year is always going to be a 10-year. And in the current world, it's going to move like eight points for every 100 basis points of rate change. The mortgage will move in a different manner. It's negatively convex. There is an embedded option in the mortgage. Who owns that option? regular mod pa homeowner, right? If, if you have a 4% rate and rates go to three, you're going to refinance. So that bond is going to poof, go away, and a new mortgage gets issued. So if rates go down, that security goes away. So uh, in, in, in a lower rate environment, that rate might only go up three points given stuff. If rates go to 5%, well, until you're never going to refinance because you have a 4% rate in a 5% world. 
when would that buy? So all of a sudden, this goes from being a, a whatever X years to being a thirty-year mortgage. So more like a ten-year bond. Well, now it's going to drop like a stone if rates go up. Uh, that negative convexity is actually the biggest risk they have. How do they hedge that? They go and they buy long-dated options, two and three-year options that kind of mimic the convexity of a mortgage security. Well, what do we know about that? That option is now at, ah, let's bring this up. Let's go to the videotape. There we go. Here's the <laughs> move index. Um, uh, you want to share the screen? There we go. Yeah. This is the move index. It's not exactly the same as the price of a two-year option on a 10-year rate, but it's close enough. And you can see that we're basically sitting at forever lows. We're not at the, we're not the rock bottom low, but it's pretty low over the history of uh, you know last 40 years. And so the cost of buying back that long-dated convexity option is now as cheap as it's ever been. That's why mortgage REITs are be able to yield, you know, eight, nine, 10% because they're using the leverage, but the cost of buying back all the risks that they've sold into the market, theoretically, the funding risk, the duration risk, the convexity risk is very cheap to buy back. And that's what's going on. So if I look at the the chart of, for example, um, the mortgage REIT ETF, and I, and, I, and I look at what happened through March, can we attribute that 50, 60% decline in March to um, exclusively to refinance risk then? No, um, because we only spoke about uh, Annalie and AGNC that primarily use Fannie, Freddie, Ginny mortgages. The other REITs out there will be involved, will do other things. They will buy adjustable rate mortgages, arms. Yeah. They will buy uh, AAA prime mortgages. So uh, when you, if you want to lend money to someone who um, is buying a house that's more than uh, $700,000, um, uh, that guy can't get a Fannie mortgage because it can't be sold to Fannie or Freddie. So there'll be a private label mortgage. Um, uh, if you want to go and... Uh, there might be loans to commercial uh, CMBS, commercial mortgage securities. Um, and, and so those loans, uh, they went down much faster than Fannie and Freddie because they had credit risk that could be, uh, well, that could be a problem, right? Uh, the rich guy could go bankrupt and not pay his mortgage back. So uh, a number of REITs got really crushed on that. And what you saw happen in March, April, was they those is everyone got margin called uh, at the bottom and um, they were forced to sell at the bottom and that's why a lot and that's why the book value of a lot of these guys uh, got clipped and it's never coming back because they were forced to sell at they had a, they had a bond that was trading at 105 you know in in February and they were forced to sell it at 80 in March and of course that bond's back to 100 now but they were forced to sell at the bottom on, on, on a margin call. And then you have other mortgage REITs who buy mortgage servicing, which is an entirely different animal, which we could spend lots of time talking about. Um, and um, there's pros and cons to using mortgage servicing as an asset. Um, and so the, the, the REIT, the, the ETF you're looking at has all those different kinds of REITs in there 
uh, and it depends what kind of risk you want to take. Um, I, I, I own all of them. Well, not all of them, many of them. Um, the, the AGNC is a leverage bet. You got seven to one. If you go buy um, uh, Penny Mac or uh, NRZ, uh, then you're looking at um, having servicing in your portfolio and you're only leveraging people have three or four to one. So you have less leverage, but a different uh, mix. They're, they're all the same concept, um, but, but they're, 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 they're different. And the idea, I think what you're trying to, uh, the idea you're espousing is that you like mortgage REITs, but specifically you like the ones that are, that are backed by Fannie Freddie, by the agencies. And um, though, and, and, and the risk that you're taking on those is exclusively limited to financing risk, refinance risk, and um, duration extension risk. If if rates go above a certain a certain level, and you can hedge that risk explicitly at the lowest some of the lowest for some of the lowest costs in history. So the the real risk you're taking there, if you put the hedge on, is is just a leverage and a refinance risk. And those are your sort of, um, you're, you're accepting those, but you're getting paid a very large spread over treasuries for accepting that risk on the order of six, 7% um, in excess Uh, yield. The answer is yes. Um, I mean, I I own all, I own a bunch of different rates. Um, I've basically spoken mostly about the simple rates because the risks are straightforward. It can be explained and people understand them. And there's very little execution risk involved. Whereas if you start investing in mortgage servicing, um, all of a sudden that's a very complicated asset. Um, and it requires a lot more IQ to make that work. And there can be mistakes uh, that, that occur. Uh, I mean, one of the, one of the reasons you saw a number of the REITs that had mortgage servicing get crushed was because of the servicer, if, if, uh, I own a home. I don't, let's just say, I, I, and I have to pay my, my monthly mortgage. I don't write a check to the bank anymore. That mortgage has been sold. And there's a servicer who has it. And he basically takes the money in, chops it up, and sends it on out to investors who own bonds. Um, if, and let's just assume these are Fannie and Freddie bonds, so they're government guaranteed. If I don't pay for three months, um, that servicer has to still send the money on to the bondholders of Fannie and Freddie. And now what will happen is the mortgage defaults, it gets cleaned up, Fannie and Freddie then give that money back to the servicer. So he's whole, he doesn't get hurt. But he has to go and fund that loan, that, 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 the, the, the um, advances he's made until he gets the money back from Fannie and Freddie. What if he's a small fry and he can't dig up the money? That was the big problem you had in March, April, May, was that we didn't know uh, if the mortgage servicers could fund their advances, the money that they're giving to, because the people who own the Fannie and Freddie and Ginny bonds, they get their money every month, life or death, no matter what. The government will have to fault on that. So the money, the money has to come from somewhere. So that, that was the risk there. And um, there was uncertainty as to whether some of these REITs could actually dig up the money for that. So I, I want to make thanks for that that briefing on on REITs because I know that that's a big chunk of um, what you're sort of recommending as a sort of t- the 2021 portfolio. So it's good to dig into some of the details there. Um, if you'll indulge me, because I, I know a, a, a big 
part of your thesis is that we are going to see inflation. It's it will be accelerated by um, this MMT narrative and the fiscal expansion that it is um, providing an excuse for. Are what other assets do you think are positioned? Um, to do well in an inflationary environment and how can investors uh, get positioned effectively in those assets? Um, well, I, I, I'll say this. I, I, I'm a monetarist and I do think you will have inflation. You cannot print money faster than the growth of the economy without inflation. Has not happened in 5,000 years of human history. Ain't going to happen now. Now, that said, it could take quite a while. You know, we what's our investment lifetime? 40 years? You know, I mean, the Roman Empire took 400 years to go down. So, I mean, it could be quite a while. Um, and it could easily be 20 more years before we get the inflation. I think it's going to be three to five, or now it's two to four. But I could be wrong on that. Um, but it, if, if it wasn't the case that that was the, that was the situation, then why wouldn't every government in the world just print all the money they want Give it to the poor people, and then all of a sudden, everyone's rich. Like, why wouldn't we do that? Money's confidence, and you have no confidence if you do it all at once. That's why you boil boil the frog slowly, or you do it through a nice, easy two to three percent inflation, isn't it? We could we could point to Japan, I suppose, which is Japan is always a pushback. Yeah, is that they have inflation and they have now what a three hundred twenty percent to GDP. Um, the demographic factor, I think, in Japan plays a big role there, and exactly. the fact that, and, and, and the fact that their large pension plans, as well as their biggest insurers, and from a regulatory standpoint, there's, I guess, quote unquote, regulatory capture, in the sense that they are forced to hold JGBs, and that's why JGBs have been for 30 years the widowmaker trade, right? You try to short it, you try to short it, and and you just can't get it, which is, I guess, German bonds have become part of that uh, uh, lexicon in the last five yeah. years because it's there, yeah, it, it's going down the same path. But I wanted to ask you, Harley, uh, what would change your general, that this main hypothesis that you have, that, that this main thesis that is rates are coming up because of inflation. So Lacey Hunt talks about how uh, not before the Fed's liabilities have become legal tender, will we uh, see inflation. So he remains in the deflationary camp until that triggers. So uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, with him and his his idea. So with, uh, what do you think about that? And, and what are some of the uh, variables that you're watching that might pose a challenge and would make you change your mind on your on your general thesis? I mean, Dr. Hunt has been dead right for 30 years. Um, and and um, although I think it's a technicality, I mean, the idea <laughs> that, that um, QE is not money printing. It's kind of like, you know, a magic trick. I mean, just because the Treasury issues bonds to to Merrill and Goldman and Solomon, and then they sell it to the Fed, uh, as opposed to the Treasury selling directly to the Fed, it's it's the same thing, okay? All you're doing is giving a couple ticks to to Wall Street uh, on the way through. It's kind of like um, the beer you're drinking is you're you're borrowing it before it, you know, meets its end. Um, So... Uh, we already have the money printing. It, it, the, the bigger issue is the velocity. Um, what would make me change my mind? Well, nothing. Uh, it's, I mean, no, I mean, I know I'm right. I just may not live to see it. Um, right. Uh, so the question is, what would make me not think it's going to be in 2023, 24? The time frame uh, issue, yeah. Yeah, it's a timing issue. Um, 
I suppose it would be if we go through this uh, MMT period that we're about to enter right now, and you did not see any uh, material growth in nominal GDP. So basically, the money gets printed and just evaporates. Um, and 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 Lacey talks a bit about that, talking about the uh, the, the, the uh, leverage factor of money printed or debt versus what kind of GDP you get out of it, and how it's kind of declining, decline, declining. All that really is just a flip coin of velocity. Um, so it's all the same thing. We, we, the money has been printed and it's gone into assets. Um, will MMT forget MMT? Well, fiscal policy. Yeah. That's what it really is. Okay, I mean, yeah. who cares if they print the money? You got to spend it. Um, will fiscal policy elevate nominal GDP? Um, the answer should be yes, because they're targeting people who spend as opposed to targeting us. Um, that's what it would be. Oh, by the way, just quickly back for a second. Wait, one second. Uh, on yeah. Japan, um, I, do, I, I, I disagree with that comment slightly. Uh, I think the big reason is not the pensions per se, but the fact that they owe the money to themselves. The debt is not external. Not foreignly owned. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, 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 and then number two is uh, the Widowmaker might, I suppose, has been uh, their bonds. You could control the bonds. They actually can buy as many bonds as they want. So the real trade is not the rate of JGBs, it's the currency. And that's the, the conundrum here is why the currency hasn't blown up because the US can, we can keep rates at 1% on 10 years. The Fed can do that. But the currency is going to collapse then. And that's what they can't control. So I, I have traded um, uh, Japanese currency uh, and, and, and I've made more than I've lost, but I will tell you, Sitting here at 104 as opposed to 125, I am a bit surprised. The the other thing is the collapse in the U.S. dollar is is inflationary, I suppose. I mean, well, of course, generally, yeah. yeah. So the, the so so on the sort of the fiscal side and the sort of fiscal policy MMT targeting sort of the low. I'd love to get your comments on this as as a monetarist and uh, someone who has more knowledge than myself. I always get tripped up by the idea that we're going to have this centrally planned economy where governments of the world are going to decide that we're going to target or that fiscal policy is going to target this inflation or sorry, uh, employment rate, and that we're going to have resulting productivity out of that in some shape or form that actually grows the economy more than the, the cost of the spending of the extra dollars in of the fiscal policy. I mean, it, I think it could be done. I, mean, I think it probably was done to some degree in um, in the 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 what was it called the big new deal or the big old deal? I can't remember. <laughs> Are you going on the green new deal? Is that what? You're well, that's what the green new deal three trillion, right? So you spend a bunch of money, it puts a bunch of people to work, like you say, you put it into pockets, and hopefully it goes to things that for the next hundred years, there's so many projects that were built a hundred years ago that are quite. They're actually relevant today. So, so to some degree, it was done well. I just wonder about the ability for those in control of fiscal policy to actually figure out the most productive assets rather than Adam Smith's invisible hand. That's where I get I, I get tripped up. But I, I, I'm not sure if that makes sense at all, if you want to comment on that. or I, I am not optimistic that the government is very good at uh, allocating where money should go to uh, for, for a variety of reasons. One, because it's, it's hard to do it for anyone to do it. And number two is there are political forces at work, um, you know, away from just the actual money return. 
Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm more of a believer in the invisible hand, I suppose. Uh, productivity, by the way, is not exactly related to any of those things. Um, so, no, yeah. What should we do? If you were, if you were at the master switchboard, what, what might you suggest we do? Um, what has been, where the Fed has been guilty going back 12 years, uh, actually really more like 15 years. Um, if you want to go and start the kernel of truth uh, was at 1998 when the government started uh, saying, we're going to make more housing loans to lower income people. We're going to lower the credit quality of what we do. And that started to increase, you know, uh, the credit risk in the mortgage market. And then skipping ahead to 04, 05, 06, when the Fed said, we're going to take rates up at a measured pace. And this is the, this is the key. When they said measured pace, they meant I'm taking rates up 25 basis points every six weeks from here to somewhere higher. When you do that, you basically create moral hazard because now you know that rates can't go up 30 basis points in the next month or six weeks because the Fed told you. And then you go and you can take on massive leverage risk because the Fed has said, we're going to go at a measured pace, not at a random pace, a measured pace. And to the extent that the Fed does that, um, they created leverage in the system, uh, over leverage, overconfidence, moral hazard. And that's, so the, the, the housing downturn was not the bad thing per se. It was that people were massively over levered and short convexity, optionality, all the bad things. They're doing the same thing again. I was and, just going to say, you're laying the breadcrumbs. I'm following. I feel like they're doing it again. They're creating moral hazard uh, at which you see me picking up the breadcrumbs. I'm saying take leverage risk. They've just said this over here. I'm not going to fight the Fed. I mean, three years from now, I might be sorry. But I mean, for right now, the Fed has said take leverage risk because we're not moving rates. Um, now, the idea is they're going to go is that people will spend money in the economy, which we saw didn't happen. Um but that's my. That, this is this is the the, the big risk here. Uh, so what I'd like to do is have the Fed pull their hands back from the market. Capital markets are very important uh, for lots of reasons. You know, giving, you know, channeling money from grandma who has a set of assets, and Wall Street then funnels that money through its pipes over to a startup who's beginning a business and going to hire people. That's a good thing, right? That's what Wall Street does. We, we're, we're, the, we're, we're, we're the plumbing, and we take money from savers and give it to people who are growing businesses. That's all fine and dandy. What is the price to transfer that money at, and what's the price we're going to go and, and lend the money at? You need the market to signal people as to what that should be so they take the proper amount of risk. And right now what the Fed is doing is they're screwing up the market signal. They've removed the market signals. We're just basically investing blindly now because we really have no idea. Um, this is, and, and the, the worst case is in corporate bonds, junk bonds actually, because they've taken the rate down and uh, we have no idea what the real risk is. And, and the, the government has put money into the system that has not increased the credit worthiness of these companies. They can still go bankrupt. Um, but the signal we usually get which is the bond prices go down, equity price goes down. Um, that's missing. 
And so it's really causing uh, people, I have no idea, no one, we're driving blind right now, which is a real problem. And, and I would like to go in and get rid of those uh, those problems. I mean, saving the, the system, you know, in March, April is fine, but, you know, trying to hold, I mean, junk bonds at 4.9%, like that's nutty, man. It's, 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 I mean, it's just nutty. Um, so I would get rid of that. Um, I remember reading something uh, today, I forget where it was, uh, that said that the more the Fed screws up, the more dependent it makes the system on itself. So so the, 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 the worse it does at the helm, the more we need it because of the way that their policies are forcing everyone to depend on this theatrics of central banking and forward guidance and all the moral hazards that you've been describing. So, so what what is the way out? It seems like we're 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 stuck between a rock and a hard place, and and with no good options going forward. They're crying for fiscal policy to save them and to to rekindle the animal spirits that QE hasn't been able to do so. I think they. I think in 2013 they missed the window. Uh, you know the taper tantrum. Uh, that was the window for the Fed to go and uh, release the market. Release the Kraken. <laughs> release the market and, 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 and try to get <laughs> try to get some normalcy back, so that, so markets are functioning independently. And the window was there; they could they, they could have done it. Um, you can't do it in la- last March. You, you can't. Um, people are, are going to get hurt. Um, and and at some point, you get to a situation where it's almost impossible enough for the Fed to get out. The, the, the debt is too big, um, and uh, you know, when, when Volcker applied the screws to the economy uh, in 1979, 1980, uh, debt to GDP was about 30%. Now we're, now we're at, what, 110, 90, somewhere there. Um, it so how you measure it, right? You, there, there are some measures that would put that would, with all the, uh, the uh, federal obligations that would put that, uh, that amount much higher than the 110 it, indeed, it would. But let's just do apples to apples. If we're thirty percent nineteen eighty and we're ninety percent now, um, taking rates up by a hundred or two hundred uh, is a whole different animal in terms of the uh, harm, damage it would cause to the economy. Uh, and so the Fed has now kind of got themselves kind of boxed in, where they really can't take rates up a lot without causing trouble. Now, I think back end rates can go up. Front end rates, it's a little more challenging. Yeah. That's interesting. The long-term rates, if they go up, obviously there's, I think, some threat to very large weights in certain equity market cap-weighted indices that are priced to perfection based on those long-term rates. But um, uh, that there, would there is, for rotation. There is the story that, like you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple, all those things are basically fifty-year bonds um, uh, that they're going to make a lot of money, but it's not going to be for a while. And so you have to take those earnings and pull them back. Pulling them back at, at a 1% or a half percent rate is a whole different, you know, uh, present value than a 3% rate. I mean, the current 30-year treasury, I think, has a DVO, a, 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 a risk profile of about 22. So if rates go up, uh, there was, it's like 160, 170 now for the 30-year. Uh, you take that rate up 100, the bond goes from 178. That's, that, that's just 100. And, I mean, yeah. And so if you have a 50-year treasury, um, which is what maybe Apple or Amazon is, and you take rates up by 200, yeah, that could, if you believe in that theory, um, it's, not, it's not pretty. Is, are there any inflation 
sort of um, uh, parts of the market. So inflationary parts of the market, with let's say oil and gas or gold or, or areas where you're seeing, um, you know, opportunity to take advantage of uh, some some of the equity risk premium involved in those and the potential for them to either provide a yield, whether it be like high yield, but in oil and gas or MLPs or, or is there any, are there any areas of the market where you're seeing opportunity where you think the inflationary tailwind will actually benefit that area and actually help it make those uh, coupon payments? Or is, is that something that you look at? Guys, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to let you guys go because I've got a, like I said, officiate a swim meet right now. But you guys carry on. And thank, Harley, really nice to meet you. And thanks for so much for the great yep. conversation. Yep. See you guys. See ya. So um, MLPs, I, I wrote about those a year and change ago. Um, that didn't work a lot. Uh, unclear to me if MLPs are a financial Ponzi scheme or it's just a matter of bad leverage. Um, they've gone down. They've come back up again. Uh, the trades that I advocated were option trades. I still have them on. Um, I, I'm not sure what I think of MLPs uh, because the beta versus oil interest rates and S&P clearly is not working because you know, these things are still down by over half from where they were. Um, I, I, gold, I own gold personally. Uh, I'm not a gold bug, uh, but, you know. Do you, uh, own, do you own the gold outright? Do you own uh, producers? Do you do you do any option strategies on that? Uh, I, I prefer to own a direct gold uh, in some manner, fashion, or form uh, because the, the producers have a lot of leverage, but my experience with them has never been good because when things go well, they manage to burn the money I mean, it's like, I mean, owning an option on, 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 yeah. on gold, which is what the miners are, is terrific. But um, these guys seem to get a little crazy whenever uh, things really get going. So uh, I, I'd rather have more certainty than that. Um, Do you consider owning one of the uh, uh, gold ETFs an outright, or are you, you'd rather own either the futures with the physical delivery or the actual outright bars? Oh, GLD is fine. I mean, you know, I mean, if you want to own gold outright, then you need a, a gun and a safe. Yeah. Uh, Buy some uh, ammo and some beans. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but, uh, um, you know, I mean, the miners are fine. I mean, they, they if you regress them versus the gold price, they look cheap, actually. And they'll probably do well. I, I just don't. I mean, I've owned gold, you know, since 2000, I don't know, 14, 13, whatever it is. And um, I haven't touched it. I had a position. I have a size. And that's what I own. Um, it's a very long-term hedge against really bad things happening. It's uh, a currency, right? It's a currency that can't be debased. Uh, that's exactly I, what it is. Yes. Yeah. That, that, which is why Warren Buffett was wrong. Warren Buffett was comparing it to, uh, you know, how many Exxons and farmland you can own. And he says, he says, you, you don't get a yield out of it. No, it, it's, it's the same thing as owning yen or euros. It's a currency. Yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, come close with a 10 foot pole to the big bad B word of the day? Bitcoin? I was waiting for that. Uh, uh, one of my favorite write ups uh, um, on my website called Tulips for the Masses. Um, <laughs> Bitcoin is a speculative vehicle. It's like pork bellies, but you can't eat them. Um, <laughs> And if you want to go trade Bitcoin, be my guest. Can Bitcoin go to 100,000? Of course it can. Um, can it go to zero? Yeah, eventually. Two things. One, it's not a transactional tool. 
uh, the, the amount of transactions Bitcoin can actually handle is microscopic compared to the millions a day that Visa does. Uh, it is not a transactional tool. Uh, number two, it is not a store of value. Store of value means I put something, I, I could buy X loaves of bread today. I don't want to buy the loaves of bread today. I want the bread tomorrow. So I put it into something, dollars, and I could buy my loaves of bread tomorrow. Um, that's what money is. Money is unspent, you know, goods. Um, Let me take the side of that argument just for a second, just for argument's sakes. Uh, why does gold have any value? I mean, one might argue that there's a narrative around gold. It's been around for thousands of years as part of humanity's uh, 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 ballast towards any form of, of currency. And then in the, in, after Bretton Woods, we decided to, to do without it. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you be able to argue that Bitcoin might eventually uh, 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 compete for that narrative uh, that affords gold? Yes, value? But, but my point was, it's not a store of value because it has like a 60 vol to it. I mean, the, 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 the yen has a six vol, uh, the euro is seven vol. Uh, British Gold pounds has quite a bit. The Russian ruble is a 14 vol, okay? So on a relative basis, gold is microscopic compared to, uh, um, to Bitcoin. So, I mean, it, it's a For secular sure. tool. Uh, and on top of if you want to, uh, here's why I, I think it's crazy is um, it's an act of war against a sovereign nation. And at some point, uh, governments of the world will go and crush it. Uh, in the U.S., how it will get destroyed is um, they're going to demand that you um, uh, file an FBAR, F-B-A-R, foreign bank account. They'll do that someday because that, that's what it is, right? It's a foreign currency in, held outside the U.S. It's a foreign bank account, which is legal, Okay, I mean, I had an account in Europe, I, and I filed a report every year. It's legal. You just can't hide it. You hide it, you go to jail. And once the government goes and demands that, and people say, "Well, I could break the law or not break the law," it's not going to go well. Um, how did Al Capone go to jail? It Tax wasn't for and it wasn't for killing people. Tax, Tax evasion. Yeah. And so that is mail uh, fraud, wasn't it? Mail fraud and evasion. Anyway. At the end of the day, I mean, the government is not going to allow Bitcoin to be a legal tender for paying taxes. So, no, it, it has to evolve to something like like gold or some, some sort of store of value, and and there's lots of evolution that has to occur before that happens. Obviously, and, way, we, and we already have an electronic currency. It's called Venmo. I mean, we, we don't we don't need, yeah, we really don't need a. Uh, a new system for this. So, um, and, and we're, we're running an hour and 15 minutes and I, I always like to, I'd love to think that you to think about or offer Harley. What, what do you think a, a couple of sort of unexpected major surprises might be over the upcoming 12 months? What are things that just are, our views not widely held, um, that you think are, you know, maybe most likely. So it's, it's, it's a bit unfair because, you could see something very obvious this year. Well, this is happening and, you know, it's quite obvious or it could be, well, you know, things look kind of normal, but what would, what would a couple of surprises be for 2021 that you think, you know, the general market is, is not quite seeing or pricing properly? Well, I mean, 
I, I, I like that question a lot more two years ago uh, right. because, of, because of the politics involved. Yeah. Um, I, I, I still think that the biggest risk we face is not trade per se or taxes or even fiscal policy. It's uh, immigration policy. Um, and that's because um, the reason why the U.S. has done so well, and you already hit on this before with Japan, uh, is the, uh, the labor force, the demographic. Uh, you've seen Europe, Japan, Russia, uh, they're all getting killed because the labor force is shrinking. Uh, in the U.S., we've had a growing labor force. Um, now, you might say that immigration is bad politics or you don't like it, but immigration is people and they arrive and they work and they, do pay, tax, and they do pay taxes, okay? Maybe not income taxes per se, but- Sales taxes. Sales taxes. Yeah. They're renting a house and yeah. that the guy who owns that house pays his real estate taxes. So they yeah. are paying into the system. Um, you can get into the nitty gritty about schools and hospitals. Um, from a macro standpoint, immigration is increasing the labor force. And to the extent we reduce that, um, that, that will be, that, that's how you kill my whole story. My whole story is based upon labor force growth rate. Um, and, and so that would be the worst thing that would happen. And labor participation rate, right? Because w- one of the things that uh, doesn't really get talked about all that much, but uh, has been happening is a steady decline of the participation rate in the labor force. And so I, I, I guess the ability to keep bringing in able-bodied people to keep uh, fueling the, the labor force helps to, to, to backstop some of that decline that, that will accelerate as the baby boomers uh, go into retirement. Uh, yeah. accurate? Sure, sure, sure. And of course, I mean, the boomers have to go and sell assets. Um, one, just to live, but two, uh, legally. I, 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 I wrote this up, I guess, two or three articles ago uh, about the projection of IRAs and what has to get sold legally once you turn 70 and a half. Um, and I presume that most boomers have active management equity accounts, whereas millennials have, you know, uh, SPY or something like that. Some, some Tesla. Um, Tesla. And yeah, they are. I don't give advice to my kids anymore. They've all done very much better than I have in investing. Um, but um, they, they're going to sell equities and they're probably going to buy bonds. Uh, and, and, and so that's a, that's a headwind for the stock market. Uh, I still, in the near term, uh, the trade that I like for ordinary people is these long dated risk reversals where you buy these out of the money calls out two, three years and you sell out of the money put. And so the last one, I mean, I wrote about one of them uh, six months ago where you did the, the uh, 360 versus the 240. And then for this year's stocking stuffers, I did the, I think it was the 415 versus 275. Um, down there, 275, 250. I mean, you're talking PEs of 14, 15, 16. Those are not bad numbers um, to have. Um, and if the Fed, if fiscal policy occurs in the near term, that should be good for nominal GDP, which will be good for stocks. Um, will you get inflation three years from now, and that'll be bad for stocks because PEs will go down accordingly? Yeah, but I mean, you know, two years is a long time away, man. Uh, so, so I, I kind of uh, it's stocking stoppers for twenty twenty one. You got to call in for twenty twenty two. You don't get those today. That's right. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
any any final thoughts anything you want to offer um you know we've, we've t- talked about where they can find you at the uh, uh what is it again convexity the, maven convexity yeah. i was going to say maven something but convexity maven dot yes. uh, com is there anything else that we should any other pearls of wisdom that they can uh, find find you at any places where they can get you uh no i i i am not on social media i i'm a believer okay. that the uh, the matrix is the gospel so. got it <laughs> fantastic this well, thank you very fun. much. Yeah, Harley, you were very generous with your time, and uh, this was great. I hope we can get to do it again sometime. Thank yeah, you, and, and if if you have any issues with what Harley said, make sure you hit him up. <laughs> what he's here for, he wants to get his thoughts challenged. You're welcome. All right, guys. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast will be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.